One thing I want you to do for me. What? Come here. When? 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 What are we waiting for? Take this! Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tim Gaither Podcast, episode 67. I'm here with Jeff Scott, the head pianist from uh, the Comedy Store, and uh, we have a shitload of stuff to talk about. How you doing, Jeff? I'm good. How are you, Tim? Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> you bet. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, because uh, you're a very interesting dude. <laughs> You've done I'm, a lot of shit, man. I have done a lot of shit. Yeah, the typical actor, like whatever, you know, dress me up in a costume for a kid's birthday party and make me do mime in a department store window or or pass out flyers at a trade show dressed as a gorilla. Really? You've done everything? <laughs> well, that was all the early gigs, but I'm alluding to singing telegrams. Oh, <laughs> God, thank God those are our thing of the past. Really? Yeah, all that annoying. Singing telegrams. What's, what's, uh, <laughs> what's, I mean, that's got to be the hardest gig on the planet, you would think. It, you know, I mean, some places they just don't know what to expect. In some places, like you go in the hospital, they don't want you coming in and singing a big song, you know, and stuff. To go to somebody's house or a birthday, it was okay. Yeah. I remember once I was asked to go, uh, Southern Ohio was still when I was living back home in Cleveland. Okay. And this lady was having her 90th birthday. And they hired me, and they wanted somebody to come in and sing an Al Jolson song because she loved Al Jolson. Right. But blackface. Oh, wow. I don't remember if I... I know I did the gig. I don't think I did blackface. Yeah. I don't think so. I think I might have just done, like, white around the eyes and the mouth or something, but I remember that one, and it's... You know, those road gigs are weird. I've had people knock at your hotel room, like, give you a hundred bucks if you crawl into bed with my wife while you're dressed as Pee Wee Herman. Okay, (laughs) thanks. And we're starting. This is how we start. (laughs) (laughs) So you were born and raised in Cleveland? Cleveland, Ohio. Kent. Uh, My dad was the Methodist minister for the college students at Kent State. My parents met met, uh, at a... uh, uh, a a uh, youth organization through a church uh, in the Cleveland area. Okay. And then when my dad became an ordained minister, his first uh, church was this, uh, actually brand new. He got to have the guy design it and everything. It's still there at Kent. It's across from the high school or the college. But uh, uh, that's where I grew up until, when did we move? Right after the riots. Kent State was 74, I think. Okay. And I was probably like eight, something like that. I was I went through first and second grade there and then moved up to back to Cleveland and okay. finished up high school there. Yeah. Okay. I love Ohio. It's one of my favorite places. Especially in the fall. To do comedy. It's one of my favorite. Uh, oh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. They just have all, every place I've been, Akron, Cleveland, mm-hmm. uh, Columbus, uh, they, Toledo, Dayton, they always have really good fucking comedy audiences. Yeah, we have, well, like Cleveland, you know, it's like... A, People think of it as, you know, these, I won't even use the the old names that people still refer to our city as, but we love our food festivals, we love uh, music concerts, live concerts, there's tons, you know, in the 
30s and 40s, you had to make it in Cleveland before you were ready to go to Chicago or New York. Okay. Stepping stones for the big band. So Guy Lombardo, his big band that does the uh, New Year's Eve. That's Guy Lombardo's band, that famous recording. And when he came from Canada, he had to appear in Cleveland and played at our downtown, one of our big theaters, for a couple months and then was ready to graduate. So, yeah, it's a great Great city, great performing arts, and, you know, it's just cold. (laughs) The fall is great. That's when my parents got married, because they both love the fall, too. But winter is just... uh, Brutal. It can be, yeah. 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 Winter in uh, the Midwest and summer in the Midwest is pretty fucking brutal, but... um... Fall, fall and spring is pretty nice everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Were you always, like, musical growing up? Um, and, uh, out in Kent, my sister took piano lessons. And when I was old enough, I started the piano lessons. And it was this, this lady, Mrs. Glauser, Gleiser? I think Glauser was her name. And she had a piano in the dining room area of her house, a baby grand. So... My sister would take her lesson, and I'd sit out in the living room and play with my Hot Wheels, and then I'd go in and take my lesson. But one thing she did notice was that I had uh, a good pitch, and she would test us, like put us in the kitchen where we couldn't see the piano and then play different notes. And I was able to do it about 90% of the time. My sister was about like 75 or so, but means like, I don't think I have perfect pitch, but I have near perfect pitch. So there was something there that, you know, she realized this kid kid has something musical. And then subsequently, I play by ear. Yeah. You know, once I started actually enjoying piano, then I realized I could just figure something out. In fact, I took some summer refresher classes after we moved back up to Cleveland. I think I was in junior high school, and uh, the the one teacher that I had knew that I liked ragtime. Okay. And the movie The Entertainer was very popular at that point, whatever year that was. So she gave me The Entertainer to learn. And I went home, and, well, my parents had the album, the soundtrack to the movie The Entertainer, which featured The Entertainer by Scott Joplin, so I listened to that, plucked it out, had it in about, like, seven minutes, and then practiced it and practiced it. And went back to my class the next week and played it. And she's like, well, that was interesting. What did you do? And I said, well, I just figured it out on, I, on, from a record. <laughs> and that wow. was the end of those classes. Because <laughs> yeah. I think now they would work with somebody that had a, an ear for music. But back then, no. I took some... Why didn't they? What do you mean? Why I, didn't they? Just you had to play classical sheet music, period. Oh, okay. I couldn't do the fingering. I still can't do runs. I'm, I played my fast honky tonk and ragtime, but I don't do runs. My fingering is atrocious. Okay. You know, but they're always, it has to be, you play this chord like this. And I'm like, but I can play it easily like that. And they're like, well, that's wrong. Yeah. Why is it wrong? I'm yeah. playing the same damn chord. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't get that as a kid. I did take a summer refresher course at Cleveland Institute of Music. And I remember the instructor, Mr. D'Augustino, wherever the hell he is, passed. Maybe he's passed. Walked me out after about a month of lessons. Walked me, like, you know, how you take a kid by the wrist, Mm -hmm. like if they're in trouble. Pulled me out to my mom's car and said, you're wasting your money. Your son will never play piano. Wow. And that was the end of my piano lessons. Then I played trumpet in junior high. And I had uh, the band teacher there. She encouraged me to, during study hall come in and work on 
playing some of the, you know, we have rehearsal rooms, so during study hall I could go in there and play piano and work on actually reading the music that our after-school jazz band was performing, and we had a really good uh, music program in okay. Cleveland Heights. Uh, so I I ended up playing trumpet still in the band, but I got those years to at least, you know, fill around and get out of study hall. What a that. cool thing to be able to play by ear and all that shit. My dad and my brother were that way, and they were both really good like artists and and I can't draw a straight line with a ruler beside yeah. me and I couldn't play anything in instrumental to play to save my life. Well, and my sister if you put sheet music in front of me she can play it like she wrote it. Uh me I have to hear it. Yeah. But if I hear it, I can figure it out. And that's sometimes I mean out here in LA for a lot of years I played piano for singers, the cabaret uh theater scene in LA. And most of the singers really liked that because one i could give them their own arrangement of the song okay and two i was always following them yeah i had to follow the singer you know yeah. and, and there's a lot of musicians that you know they set the the lead and some singers like that but most singers i know like to you follow them so if they slow down at a part you slow down at a part even if it's not in the sheet music well, I don't have music, so I, when I rehearse with somebody, if they're going to slow there, I just make a note on that word in the lyric. That's what I usually worked with. I write out lyrics. Okay. And I, you know, that was my sheet music. So <laughs> just when, read the lyrics. When you, uh, when did you start doing? Did you move out to L.A. to become an actor or to continue your music or? Um, why did you initially move out here? None of the above. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got a job at SeaWorld in Ohio. Uh, in the summer of 87, when I worked there for two years. Okay. Uh, the original SeaWorld was in Ohio. And for oh. those of you listening, wondering why the hell, it's because it's nowhere near the ocean. That's why the hell it was in Ohio. <laughs> because you couldn't get to an ocean. Right, yeah. So point. it made sense. Yeah. And, and then as they built the other SeaWorlds, the Ohio Park was the national headquarters. Okay. So I was hired in 87. I was doing uh, mime at the Sea Lion and Otter show. You know, the guy that messes with you as you walk in and then the Sea Lion pushes him in the tank and you smell like raw fish all day. Lovely job. <laughs> Actually, it really, really is a great, great job. Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, and then they had a brand new show. Uh, in, in the middle of the summer, there was going to be laser and fireworks outside, and they wanted a, a character, like a, a maestro, okay. to conduct it. Just sort of a pantomime type thing, you know? And so I got that gig within the park, so now I had two gigs, and I was rehearsing for that. In the meantime, I had already started impersonating Pee Wee Herman back in 95 when I lived in Provincetown. So I was doing Pee Wee gigs here and there, and... A morning television show had been wanting to have me on as a guest. And they did their first summer show live from SeaWorld. And it was actually in the stadium where the laser and fireworks show was going to be that I was hosting. Okay. So I guess, I don't know if they got their signals crossed or didn't understand what I was doing, but they had me on as Pee Wee. Yeah. Which was, you know, just me as Pee Wee. And then they're talking about, you can see him all summer long here hosting the laser and fireworks show. And I'm, I didn't really register until yeah. the president of the park from Los Angeles met me outside after that show because I was surrounded by kids. I wanted, a, you know, an autograph and a picture and stuff. Yeah. And he says, come back to the office. I need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, crap. What have I done? They're like, yeah, we just saw all the people out there and how popular this Pee Wee stuff is. So we want you to do Pee Wee for the laser show. 
and not this other character, which was great. I negotiated a, a good deal, mm-hmm. a really good deal. Uh, it's sort of bad, though, because the girl that had written the show had to sort of acquiesce to now what I was going to do. And, and I, I think I'd be bothered by that. You know, yeah. you write a whole show, and then somebody says, no, we're putting this other character in completely. Yeah, yeah. But it worked out, and I hosted it for two summers, two shows a night, seven nights a week. Okay. And during the winter, the park is closed. And they build sets and train animals for the other three parks. But they were like, well, we've got him under a two-year contract. What do we do with him? So they were trying to figure to send me to Florida or San Diego. And there was a, uh, a, a show called City Streets at the San Diego Park that had BMX bike riders and break dancers and uh, um, skateboarders and, you know, okay. a, a clown act and an animal routine. It was all set like in just a city. It looked like a city. It was actually the city set from the movie Annie. They bought the New York oh, wow. City set. Huh. And so I, they put me into that show. Well, they flew me down to test. And if that didn't work, then they were going to fly me to the Florida part to see. But that that show, I took over some other actors' segment for the yeah. whole winter, which, again, way to get an entire cast to hate you. Yeah. Hi, I'm the new guy, and I'm taking over one of your friend's parts. Right. But because I did have some pull, and I, I was at, at the Ohio park, I was their media spokesman. So the whole first year I was there, I was all over the country as Wee promoting this brand new laser. Now every park has laser and fireworks, but we were the first park to put the two together in the entire country okay, well. back in 87. And uh, so I, you know, had a little cachet. So things like, hey, these kids at City Streets don't have air conditioning in their dressing rooms. And I have a trailer with a dressing room. Can we get them some air conditioning? Yeah. Suddenly, sure. I mean, I went to the president, and I just said, hey, these kids are working really hard. They don't have air conditioning. Oh, yeah, we'll get that. Yeah. So. Oh, good for you. Good job, man. I think the cast <laughs> eventually came around, and the, they, sure. some of those people are still my dearest friends that I talk to regularly today. All those years, those, those two years of that park were just amazing. But that's how I was in San Diego, living a block from the comedy store condo in okay. Pacific Beach, and it was like 76 and sunny every day during the winter. And when I finished my second year at the Ohio Park, they said, we'd like to hire you to be a show producer. And you can act in the shows, too, so you can get paid twice. And I'm thinking, that's incredible. Yeah. I could probably buy a house. Right. Easy. Um, but I've just been somewhere where it's 78 and sunny. Yeah. And... My health clock is ticking. My parents didn't know about my... I have HIV, so at that point, nobody nobody knew about it. I'd already lived longer than the two years they said I would And have. how old were you when you found out? Uh, I was 23. Okay. Yeah. So what year would have that been? 85. 85. Yeah, I always wanted to make a t-shirt that said, I went to Provincetown, and all I got was this lousy virus. <laughs> <laughs> but if I hadn't gone to Provincetown, like my mentor suggested, I wouldn't have started playing piano and cabarets. I yeah. wouldn't have started impersonating Pee Wee. Mm-hmm. That's where that started. The This Liza Minnelli impersonator that I played for, his friends were like, you know, your piano player looks like Pee Wee Herman. He's like, let's put that in the act. So it was just like a total, you know, goof that I fell into the impersonating thing. And then right. uh, SeaWorld had to negotiate with his with Peavy's people. It seems like the best shit in life you know. starts out that way. Like, you know, like yeah. in a way that you don't ever see it coming or 
any of that. So right, right, right. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, you know, so Pee Wee's people had to sort of negotiate with Seaboard what we could and couldn't do. You couldn't say Pee Wee Herman, just right. Pee Wee, you know, you had to always say Jeff Scott, all my pictures, Jeff Scott has Pee Wee. And, and that, I, you know, I, I got in with a lookalike agency and I had, you know, there's legal things about that that you can't just pass yourself off as the person. Right. But I was doing my own material, but it was also easy because I knew what the material was. It was just like me when I was a little kid. Right. Silly stuff, you know. And I worked at I worked at Hilarities in Akron. Okay. Nick's club and then also in the in at the club in Cleveland. Okay. I've never been uh, Hilarities. I've always done but, the improv, Oh, but. gorgeous club. Hey yeah. Nick, we have to hire Tim Gaither. Yeah, I haven't done the for improv hilarities. now, so yeah, I'd love to come back. Um but uh I I finished my second year. They said, you know, let, let's be a producer and everything and I'm thinking, well I'm already uh let's see, eighty five so that was two years longer than they told me I had to live. Wow. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to live where it's freezing cold half the year, even if it is a great sort of thing. I want to go to L.A. and see how much can I do before I drop dead. Yeah. Which is horrible to say it like that. I, and I never said that to my parents like that, but that was sort of well, fuck, yeah, the no, reason you know. for, like, you know, I've I've made a little bit of something of myself here in Cleveland, and... I seem to be beating the odds a little bit. Let's go see how much could have happened. Yeah. And that's why I decided to move to L.A. And I got uh, a manager, and he got me uh, <laughs> doubling work on the Big Top Pee Wee poster. Uh, I did, they needed to shoot like 25 finished posters for the studio to decide which one. And when they decided on the one, Paul Rubens himself said, well, how'd you do this? I want to go on vacation. I, he only wanted one thing on the poster change. Yeah. And they said, well, we hired a, a, an impersonator. And he's like, oh, well, that's exactly what I see. It's the, the right suit, the right shoes. Use him. So if you look at the poster, they put his head on my It's my whole body flying off of the trapeze. And this scar here on my left hand uh -huh. where I'm flying off the trapeze, you can see that. They didn't. Didn't Photoshop the scar, everybody. <laughs> it's my one proof. So the big top peewee poster, that's you. Yeah, with awesome. Paul's face on. Awesome. My, my Which is how they do that stuff all the time. But normally they would bring in the artist to do the final one. In fact, when I shot the first, you know, couple dozen posters, uh -huh. um, they said, the, the, the photographer's like, no, you're not going to be on the finished one. They always bring the, you know, the, the real celebrity in. Yeah. But... I guess I'd done enough homework on having the right type of Did you have suit. much uh, relationship with, with Paul Rubens? Never met him. Never met him. I have never met him. I'm, I've gotten to be friends with Lynn Stewart, Miss Yvonne, okay. and George McGrath uh, through friends that I was in a sketch group with that knew those kids. And uh, But I've never met Paul. And you know what? I, I figure if it'll happen, it'll happen. I'm not like going to try to send him letters and go right. to his house and stuff. Over the years that I worked doing lookalike stuff, mm -hmm. some of those people are absolutely crazy. Or they really look like somebody, but they don't have any talent at all, other yeah. than just a physical look. They can't mm -hmm. sound like them or whatever. And some of those people I worked with are so convinced that they're like in the family, like that they're real friends with these right. famous people and stuff. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he... You know, thought, yeah, lookalikes, they're crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I've never, I'm, you know, never run in the, the same circles. I mean, uh, before I started the comedy store, I, I auditioned to be a uh, pianist at the Groundlings. 
and the comedy store hired me first. So otherwise, I might have gotten to work with him on some of the, the old shows. Yeah. Down there, but uh, I thought when when that whole thing happened with him and the theater and all that, and then he didn't see him for like. I don't know how long it was before he made a public appearance again, but he did like a an award show or something. And he came out and he goes, "So heard any good jokes lately?" <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Might have been the MTV Awards. That was the funniest. That was like the that was like that could not have been handled a better way than for oh, him yeah. to come out oh, and yeah. make a joke like that. And that was such a ridiculous. You know, I had several calls of like um, oh, I can't even think of what those old TV shows are, where they would sort of hype a, a news story and present it like it was entertainment magazine, right. you know, but like it's, you know, Hollywood undiscovered, yeah, you yeah. know, usually on a UHF channel or so. Oh, I'm so old, UHF, on, an, uh, on a high-end cable channel. But uh, I got one call where they're like, yeah, we want to, you know, have you dress up and totally reenact the thing. And I'm like, hell no. Yeah, fuck I said, the guy... His his people, once I came out to L.A. and I started doing a lot more work locally, they said, look, you're, you know, infringing on a trademark character. And if you do this for us, when we hire you, fine. If not, there could be trouble. And I'm like, hey, that's fine. It was six years. It got me to L.A. You know, I'm yeah. more than grateful to say, okay, no, no problem. Uh, but these places, you know, still called me during those, when that all went down down in Florida and I'm like no I'm not gonna do something like that demeaning I mean the guy was nice enough he could have right. sued I mean he could have sued me for copyright infringement technically I yeah. guess yeah you know although I did my own material sure. and everything but it's an original trademark character so I'm like why would I you know I got to do it for six years and made for a, a starving actor, enough money to move out to L.A., and I had saved enough that I didn't have to work for the first two years I was out here. Awesome. You know, I just pursued acting, so. Yeah. So it was a, a win for me, and, you know, never have to put the suit on again. Yeah. <laughs> and now I've realized here, with being at the store for 22 years, you know what, the shelf life is a lot longer behind the scenes. Yeah. So that's a, that's a young man's game, doing that stuff. Although I think when I'm an old man, I'd like to go back into like TV commercials and stuff. Be the you know the 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 dirty old guy that says <laughs> shit that you just wouldn't expect. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been at the comedy store for twenty two years now. Yes. Um, tell us some. Uh, what's your best memory of of Mitzi Shore? Like what what kind of person? I, I never got to actually meet her. I mean, I was in her presence a couple times, and she passed me. I was one of the last people she passed, which is a yeah. huge honor for me. But. Um, I never really had much interaction with her, mm -hmm. other, other than her saying, you've got something, <laughs> uh, you know, which... And I think my second night that I was at the club, she told me I wasn't funny. Really? <laughs> but Did I'm you the, do stand-up? I'm the piano player. No, 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 okay. no, no, no. I just made a joke while I was talking with her. She's like, not funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I definitely am not going to tell you that I used to do stand-up. On the other hand, you know, the thing that I realized was, I'm a theater guy. Yeah. That's performing. That's, you know, doing a character like, you know, Pee Wee right. or, or whatever. That is not straight stand-up. Straight stand-up, unless you're a prop comic or, you know, one of the genres mm -hmm. of comedy. Basic stand-up is you and a microphone and your voice. Right. You know, and that I could never do. I, I've never 
been myself on stage once. Yeah. I like to dress up and be somebody different. Yeah. I'm always, I, I'm not comfortable. Even, you know, after, like I said, 22 years here at the club, mm-hmm. sometimes when the guys will call me up on stage to do something silly or all, I get just... Nervous? Stupid. And why? I've been for 30, let's see, 30, almost 39 of my, uh, no, 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 36 of my uh, 56 years, I've been working professionally as an entertainer. Yeah. You know, 2,000 people, two shows a night at SeaWorld for two years. I'm not afraid, but I was in a costume. Yeah. When they call me up on stage as me, and knowing that I used to talk to Richard Pryor, who talked on that stage. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, it, it, it's, that stage is overwhelming. That's a, that's a different beast up there, the original room. Uh, you were dude, asking, uh, dude, other clubs in the country, I can eat chicken wings. And as they're, they were just in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, I was starving, and they were late on my food, and, I had this, <laughs> and they finally delivered my chicken wings, and I didn't want to go on stage and have hunger pains. So I'm like, I was literally eating chicken wings up until they were like, you guys ready for your headliner? And I'm like, ah, fuck it. You know, but, but here, I, I, I still kind of, you know, it still makes me nervous. This place in the Comedy and Magic Club, I get I still get pretty damn anxious about before I go up. Yeah. And as well, soon as I get up, it's fine, but so sure, I, but I, I, I mean, get it. Anybody that does stand up knows the legends, you yeah. know. I mean, you were asking about favorite stories. I have I've one that I think I told on the Mitzi Shore Memorial podcast, which I'll tell you, but my, my other is just being with Mitzi. Mm-hmm. My first year... In the original room was Richard Pryor's last year performing in public. Hmm. So Richard was there on Wednesdays and Fridays. And on Wednesday, he'd come in before the show started. And he would sit in Mitzi's seat. She would sit in the seat beside him. They'd have, uh, she'd have her Perrier and he'd have some watered down alcohol. (laughs) But he, he had some alcohol. And I'd set the piano up and I'd get my coffee. And then I'd sit across from them and listen to these two titans of comedy just talk. Yeah. You know, and then within a few months, I was involved in the conversation. Wow. And then, you know, suddenly after that, the door guy's like, Richard wants to see you, and Richard would come in on Friday, and he'd sit out in his van, because it was a little later on Friday when he performed. And so he liked me to come out and tell him, who's here to see me tonight? I'm like, oh, Tony Curtis is here tonight to see you. And you know, oh, he, he, he liked that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. See, I hate oh, when absolutely. people tell me who's in the audience. I'm like, just but let I mean, me you're find Richard Pryor during your last sure. year, you know. Yeah, yeah. Connie yeah. Stevens was yeah. there one night. I got giddy walking her to her car. Yeah. And, uh, and, and gosh, I wish I had audio tape of yeah. some of that. But I did ask a waitress one night, could I take a picture? And I have a picture of me and Richard and Mitzi sitting in the back. And that was the first picture and only picture I took for my first 10 years here. Wow. Because I'm like, I can't do any better. Yeah. I've I've done pretty damn well, you know. Got some pictures with uh, some Chappelle guy and some Rogan guy and some Bill Byrne, you know. Some other comics, some nice (laughs) Andrew, somebody (laughs) or other. Right. But that photo still, that's on my phone. That's when I'm like, oh. That was just, you know, who got that? I mean, to sit there with the two of them for 30, 40 minutes and just listen to them. Yeah. Uh, my favorite story about Mitzi. Polly called me when Mitzi was starting to get a little more ill and uh, needed uh, somebody to stay with her. Uh, she told Polly, get Scott. She always called me Scott, Jeff Scott. Yeah. And her son's name is Scott, so it's easy to remember. Yeah. You know? And Polly called me. He's like, "Bro, mom's not doing well. She wants you to stay over tonight." 
I'm like, uh, okay, well, I'll have to get my medications also. <laughs> two, two sick people sitting together. And we sat up, uh, sat, I sat beside her in her bed most of that night uh, watching old videotapes of Yakov and other people. And she just like, you know, was cracking and telling me stories and stuff like that. And then, I don't know, 10.30 or 11, she went to bed and I stayed downstairs. There was a guest room off of the kitchen, but the, they had an intercom in case she needed assistance to get up to the bathroom. It was like 3, 3.30 in the morning. She's like, Scott, I need to go. I get up there. And at that point, Mitzi could still walk, yeah. but she needed somebody to hold her hands in front of her, you know. Okay. Got her into the restroom. She's like, okay, close the door, you know. <laughs> and then when she's done, I walk her back to her bed. Well, she's got one of those California queens or kings it's like you know five feet off the ground just okay. a giant bed and she couldn't get into it and i said mitzi let me just pick you up she's a little bit of a thing you know so i picked her up in my arms and i didn't want to lay her right at the edge of the bed because mm -hmm. i didn't want to when i pulled off for her to roll over right. <laughs> out of the bed yeah. so i laid her over into the middle and i lost my balance and i was going to fall over on top of her <laughs> so i literally put my right hand and right knee on the other side of her so i ended up straddling her <laughs> like on all fours right over her face to face yeah and she looks at me and this is like you know 3 30 in the morning yeah. she looks at me she goes oh scott are you coming on to me i thought you were gay <laughs> and i fell down beside her and the two of us laughed like little school kids it was just once in a while mitzi had a certain laugh when she liked you yeah there was a a bit of a different laugh that it was like you really knew that you were having a moment with her, you know. I'm getting, oh, that gets me off a club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what a story. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. What kind of person, what, 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 what kind of person was she like in a nutshell? Uh, very strong, very demanding, uh, very loving uh, to, to her comics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she was a divorced woman at 44 when she took over the club with four children. Which is just awesome to me. Amazing. I mean, nowadays people would be like, yeah, that's what women do. But, you know, sure. in 1972 or 73, I guess it was, when she officially... And she also, she won the rights to the business along with the house and the divorce. Yeah. Nobody had that back in the day. She had Marvin Mitchelson, a famous, famous divorce attorney. Huh. Hollywood divorce attorney. So, you know, that was a strong woman right there. Yeah. And hell, when she met Sammy out on the road and started dating him, I doubt she thought, I could manage comics. I know exactly what's funny and what isn't. Yeah. But she did. She just didn't know it yet. Yeah. And came to know it. So, yes, she was, you know, very strong. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you did something wrong... You got fired. Yeah. You know, we had, my first year, we had uh, 15 managers. Wow. No shit. And, you know, and uh, and uh, Eleanor Kerrigan, who is one of our paid regulars that opens up for Dice on the road, uh, Eleanor was our head waitress back then. And she just, you know, basically, you know, let me know, don't talk to Mitzi, don't bother her. I come from a huggy, kissy sort of family. Mm hmm and I guess because I'd had these moments setting up in the room where it was just me and Mitzi and Richard that I felt close to her. And I remember one night when I came into the kitchen and Eleanor was there 
And I just hug kissed Mitzi and gave her a kiss on the cheek. And I think she hugged me back a little bit. She wasn't like, get off of me or anything, you know. <laughs> and Eleanor pulled me out of the kitchen. She's like, you don't fucking touch Mitzi Shore. You're going to get fired. And I'm like, for hugging her? Yes! <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But I did. I still continued to hug her. Yeah. And then suddenly I had grad kids. And suddenly she's kissing and hugging everybody, right. initiating it. You oh, know? yeah. It's so, funny how people change with shit like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, she was a very, very tough woman. And when I started here uh, in 95, uh, was, you know, past the heyday, we still had a lot of the old-time guys were still here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there were nights that it was just like 30 people, and we would feel that was packed, especially after 9-11. Oh, really? It got real slow. And then the past six years, I just can't explain it. I mean, this has become the hottest place Yeah, it's always in the country. Yeah. Seven nights a week, we're packed. Yep. Packed. I mean, people are turning away. And people wait. People wait till around 11 o'clock when the, you know, some people leave. And then it's like, oh, good, we can come back in and see, you know, Rogan because he goes on at 1030 or whatever. That's just an amazing. So, time. would you say this is the best era you've been? For me, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, starting like I said, I got to play piano in the main room. I got moved in pretty quick. Mitzi liked my ragtimey music, okay. and uh, so I think she actually got rid of two piano players to bring me in. I know she got rid of one, which is why there was an opening. But then another guy, <laughs> she, uh, I guess he did a little bit of stand up from the piano. One night. She didn't care about that. No, you don't do that. You just introduce and move on. Yeah. And keep the show going. You're not funny. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could be a little sure. silly with your intro, but... You yeah, know. I love that she, that without knowing her, what I understand, she was such a... Um, she was so strict about details. Oh, yeah. You know, like there was a guy the other night during Bill Burr's... Um, he was working out his hour, and I was I was watching that, and uh, there was a waiter or a waitress or something that was like standing up and talking loud, and I... I leaned over to my buddy and I go, Mitzi Shore would fucking hate her. She would, she would have fired her. <laughs> because you don't do that. Right. You know, it's right. all about like, Eleanor was telling me like, you you need to be like a fucking ninja in there when you're, you know, and that's what Especially I... Especially if Mitzi was watching. Yeah, without knowing her, that's what I loved about her was like that she realized that everything matters. And now, yep. dude, I just did some shows and the MC was doing 30 fucking minutes. Yeah, 30 minutes, and then he was doing time in between, and he was being filthy and doing all this crowd work, and I went up to the guy at the booth, and I go, how much fucking time is this guy doing? And they're like, um, he's supposed to do 10. And I was like, he's on minute 24, and I know for a fact he hasn't even gotten into his closer. And they're like, yeah, he's notorious for this. And I'm like, well, then it's your guys' fault. Right. It's on you then, if he's notorious for it. Right. And you're not fucking saying something to him, it's not even his fault anymore. It's your guys' fault. Like... Yeah, and Mitzi wouldn't put up with that. It's all important, you know? It's all fucking for the show, and if it's an hour and a half show, you can't have the goddamn MC doing time in between and 30, and it just fucking drives me nuts. And I miss people like that, and the guy I started with that taught me kind of the ins and outs of stand-up and the different positions and all that. Um, It's all for a reason, you know? And it sounds like she really understood that better than just about anybody. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. So. And there were also in those early years when I started, if somebody came on stage or wasn't doing well, mm-hmm. didn't like. Yeah. I remember a very well-known 
uh, eccentric performer who will name anonymous. Yeah. And uh, he was doing really, really bad one night and didn't know that Mitzi had come into the room. Mm-hmm. And he was basically preaching. He wasn't telling jokes. He was telling everybody how great he was and why he was, you know, God on earth, pretty much. Yeah. And they flashed him. He didn't get off. And they flashed him. And he didn't get off. And door guy came over and said, Mitzi wants to see you. And I walked over and I'm like, I didn't do anything. <laughs> and she's like, play him off. And I'm, play him off? Yeah. Play him off. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mitzi told me I had to play him off. So I did wait. I went back to my piano, and I waited because whatever he was talking about was something I had heard him talk before, and I knew that there was sort of a stop point. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, I played him off, uh, to which he screamed, blankety-blank, are you blanking crazy, and started to storm over to the piano with the mic, and I whispered, Mitzi's here. She said, you're done. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, peace out. I'm so-and-so. Wow. And uh, a real stage work. I mean, a talented guy. Yeah. But, and especially, you don't just, you know, get up there and, and not be funny when Mitzi's there. And again, he didn't know it, but, boy, he got off right quick. And the <laughs> he's nowhere around anymore. So I'll tell you that my favorite thing was they had, uh, I used to have a phone by the piano mm-hmm. and a little light, just like Mitzi had phones at her booth yeah. with a light on it so it would light up and not interrupt the show. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hey, okay, he's gets off because of Mitzi. And uh, I think maybe two or three times when he was going long, I mean, by long, I mean we're into an hour on a 15-minute set. Oh, wow. That's fucking unacceptable. Oh, it's unprofessional. Yeah, uh, uh, he thinks because he's been banned that that's like, oh, my comedy's the baddest. It's the toughest. It's right. No, you're, mo- you're the most unprofessional. That's yeah. all that means. Anyway, so what I started doing on those nights when he'd be running long is I'd turn the ringer up on my telephone, mm-hmm. and I'd go over to the cover booth, and I'd say, call my phone in a minute. And I'd put the volume mic up on my piano. Yeah. The phone would ring. Are you crazy? Yeah. Huh? Yes, he said. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell him. That was Mitzi. She said, you need to get off. Oh, okay. I'm out of here. <laughs> nice. So the power she had. I controlled him with Mitzi's power when she wasn't there. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> because, come on, an hour yeah, dude, I don't care who the hell you are. Yeah, that's unacceptable. Unless you're scheduled for an hour. Right. I see people all the time that, you know, like on Monday especially, they'll, they'll see the light and then they'll break out their little notebook or their phone and I'm like, no, motherfucker. You're yeah, what done. do I want to end on? Yeah, I'm like, or don't you love this when they're like, oh, that wasn't good. I can't end on that. Yeah. Sure you can. You're at 18. Yeah. You could have ended at 15 when you're supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it drives me crazy. I'm in the back, and I'm like, there's there was one night I, I said something from the back. It was, like, you know, not packed or anything, and I was just like, there's other comics here. <laughs> yeah. And he looked around, and I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, beat it. You know, like, yeah. it's pissing me off. Like, that's just not what you do. You don't break out your notebook and start trying new shit when you see the light. That's not a, no, that's not a suggestion. That means you've got three fucking minutes, and wrap it up. And the, the handful of years that I did work at, like, Polarities. I, I hosted their open mic okay. after going to perform at it once. And their open mic was like, I think they had a $75 cash prize yeah. or something. 
So uh, the second week I went, like, all these acts are like, this isn't fair. He's getting all this time. I'm like, I'm the MC. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But as the MC, I learned that you do your short set and then in between you keep the energy is that, is that how'd you like that that was great pretty funny with the thing huh well wait do you see this next one boom and right. you're right on the next person it's yeah. not about you it's about keeping the show moving right yeah that's what a good mc should do did you uh did you know sam kennison i did not he had already passed before okay. uh what about robin williams uh robin i met a few times okay. yeah yeah Any stories about robin uh very quiet yeah very nice. I saw his biopic very last night. Very quiet. Did you? I haven't seen yeah. it. It just aired last night, didn't last it? Last night, yeah. Uh, yeah, because I know, I think Elaine Boosler's on there talking about yeah. some stuff. Um, uh, <laughs> there was a night when one of our comics, Rick Ingram, who you know. Yeah, he's from KC. Rick, yeah. Rick had his 21st birthday. And on that night, Robin happened to pop in. And he watched Rick and was amazed. Really? Just blown away by this kid who, you know, just didn't give two craps and is just flinging, you know, winging it by the seat of his pants. Really. Yeah. Although when Rick started, he had material, but then, you know, quickly realized that all he had to do was just talk and people laughed. Yeah. And Robin stayed and watched him. And then uh, Robin did a set. And uh, after Robin's set, we were all in the kitchen having shots for uh, Rick's birthday. And Robin came back and, oh, come on, come on, have a shot, have a shot. So he had one shot with us. And then we went back to Sacred Ground and did not smoke marijuana. Yeah. That's how I like to say that. (laughs) And he joined us and he didn't perform. 15 or 20 minutes we were out back smoking. He watched Rick and laughed. And I was just like, I just assumed that he would be the type of guy that had to be the funniest person in the room and always on. It wasn't that at all. Yeah. And to hear that crazy laughter coming out of him when I'm standing right beside him, and there were four of us back there yeah. with Robin, you yeah. know. Unfortunately, then three days later, it's like Entertainment Tonight, Robin Williams checked back into rehab. So we all feel like, whoops. Because of that night? I mean, he started We feel that like night? it. We yeah. feel, yeah. He did a shot and he smoked some with us, and that might have been enough to... You yeah, know, who knows happened after that? But it was only uh, like two days after that that he went back into rehab. So, huh. as much as I love that memory, I also feel a little guilt with it. Well, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know enough to know exactly when it started, but I know that he was he had been sober for quite a few years, and then he went. Yep. To, he did that movie in Alaska, and he started drinking there because he was just basically out of boredom. Right. Um, so he may have been that may have been the straw that broke it, or. Could have been. Or maybe he relapsed again. I don't know the chronology of it, but, um, yeah, so very nice, quiet person. Yeah, the first night he came in, Byron uh, Allen had a, uh, uh, is that right? Byron Byron Allen, yeah. Yeah, Byron Allen had a a spot, and uh, I, before he went up, I said, hey, Robin just came in. He was asking if you were here, and he's like, oh, is he going to go up? He said, no, he won't. He didn't want to go up. He's like, I'll get him to go up. And he did. He went over and talked to him before he went on, and he brought him up right afterwards. That was the first time I saw Robin. (laughs) Because he just approached me as an employee and was like, is Byron here? Yeah. Because I had a T-shirt on. So that's sort of how I met him. Yes, Mr. Williams. (laughs) Yeah, it always bummed me out that I never never got to meet um, Robin Williams. But anyway, 
things like this. I never got to meet Vincent Price. That's my favorite. Oh, really? I was going to ask who your favorite comedian is of all time. Well, okay, a comedian. That would be different. Um, I'm going back to what I liked the most when I was a kid. It would be, this is so silly, but with my mime background and sort of clean comedy that I did as Pee Wee and everything, Red Skelton. Really? Really? That's fucking great. That's funny that you say I that. I loved Red Skelton. I loved him when I was a kid, too, and I haven't thought of him in... Good night and God bless. Yeah. Yeah, because he did crazy, outlandish characters with his hair all fakakted and stuff and all. But it was, and you know, it was clown, clowning sort of. He would do that hobo pantomime character and right. stuff. And I think that had a, a big influence on me. And my parents then, you know, as I was into junior high or so, we got to watch Laugh-In with my parents, which was super edgy. Yeah. You know, now it's on the reruns and I watch it and I'm like, holy crap, that show was not for children. Yeah. <laughs> but I was so naive, I didn't know what, it all right over my head. Yeah. <laughs> who, who uh, from the, all the greats you've seen at the comedy store, is there one that stands out as being your favorite or? I always say, because it's as just. a person or as a comedian? It, it's, it's easy. I have three that I always say because they're totally different and it's, it, 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 it involves three generations of all my years here. Uh, Rick Ingram, who we already talked about. Yeah. Um, and then going back years before Rick was around, uh, a gentleman that is still here, a true comics comic, Brian Holtzman. Oh, yeah, Brian. He's great. Uh, who is, uh, you just can't quite describe Brian. He's a, an insane, uh, broken down, stuttering fool, and he's the sweetest man. You know, he's the one person that if I take a day off, he calls me, and he's like, where the hell are you? I got a spot tonight. And, you know, goofing around, but it's like nobody ever calls to check in. I mean, Brian does. Yeah. And then going back to even before Brian, one of my all-time favorites would be Carl Lebeau. Okay. I never got was, to him. Carl was Kinnison's opening act. Mm-hmm. Held him in his arms. They were. He was in the car right behind Sam when that accident happened. Carl's got his own room up in Vegas now. He's been up there oh, for, great. for so him. next time you hit Vegas. I've heard he's just fucking great. He is a genius. The man just, uh, he, he improvs. He's got material. I remember a night when he decided uh, in the main room, he said, hey, Danny, the sound guy, Danny Lucas. Danny and I used to run the show super tight in the main room. It's, he'd be at the booth, and we had our little hand signals, so, you know, we didn't have to leave our work areas. And, man, that show, 15 minutes, everybody, nobody ever went over. Yeah. Um, but one night, Carl said, hey, Danny, why don't you bring the lights really down dim? Give me just, like, a little follow spot. And, Jeff, give me some sort of beatnik music. And I'm like, okay, we don't know what he's going to do. He did his normal act. But he did it in this hips beatnik sort of way man you dig it (laughs) and it was just hysterical you know it's like taking a song and playing it as a polka when it's supposed to be you know rap yeah (laughs) (laughs) and he can do it and make it work and just yeah that's that's one of my all-time favorites but uh carl lebeau brian holtzman rick ingram those are definitely of, and, and, and now, you know what, I got so many young kids yeah. that are coming around. So many guys that have been here that are now popping off like crazy, like Sebastian. You told me a great story about Sebastian when you, when you were there the <laughs> night that he like became Sebastian. Yeah, of. yeah, yeah. Well, Sebastian took Sandy Shore's uh, comedy class twice. 
Okay. And I would play piano for the graduating night. It was a show in the main room. And he wore, you know, because Sebastian's in good shape. Yeah. And, you know, figure like 20 years ago, he was just young and shredded, you right. know. And he would just wear these tight shirts and strut across the stage. And it seemed like 30 seconds would go by before he'd say anything. He just yeah. had this angry scowl, yeah. you know. And he just wasn't funny, at least not to me. The women loved him. Yeah. You know, eye candy, but not funny. And then Mitzi passed him, and I'm watching him. I'm like, not funny. Even Bobby Lee will tell you this, too. Bobby Bobby remembers this. And, and Sebastian was very clear to people, don't fuck around with me from the back when I'm on stage. Don't yell out. I don't play that game. Yeah. You know, Sebastian's never been the guy to come and hang out here, really. He's very serious about his work. Right. He does it, and he goes to the next gig. And it was a very late night, early on in his career. And so he probably was after midnight. Late spot for Sebastian. Maybe five people in the audience. And suddenly, seven comics sitting in the back. And they do the one thing that he never wanted, and they start fucking with him. Yeah. And I watched him... Tried to stay in his character, yeah. you know, and finally he broke the character and yelled some insult back with, like, you know, cuss word or something that, so Sebastian swore, ooh. And Does the audience... swear? No, you not know? really. I mean, okay. he, maybe a little bit, but yeah. not that much. Okay. But in that moment when he broke his character, the audience laughed, and he suddenly... I think, I don't think so. I know. He got it. He realized, oh, maybe all I have to do to get more laughs with this angry character is just to wink at the audience and let them know this is not real. Right. And instead of walking back and forth across the stage and then going, the week I had today, he would start to walk and then he was about to speak and he'd be like... <gasps> And he'd smile to himself like he almost made himself laugh, you know, totally put on. But the audience is like, oh, he's not real, whatever he's about to say. Yeah. And then the week I had today, shopping at Ralph's, and it was the exact same act, and suddenly it was hysterical. Yeah. And now you just can't touch the guy. He's, he's fucking great. I never thought I would see him go as physical. I mean, yeah, little arm gestures and stuff, but that guy's on the floor, he's running around like a gorilla, and... Just so silly. Yeah, Sebastian is absolutely <laughs> one of the best there is these days, especially. Um, so, yeah, that's a good story. And Bobby Lee is, that. I mean, homegrown guy. He's been famous. He's the only one who doesn't know he's famous. I still think that. Yeah. But with Man TV, Bobby was, you know, doing super famous stuff. And now he's on movies all the time. And, you know, uh, uh, and we've, then we've got young guys like uh, Fahim Anwar. Mm-hmm. who's coming up. You know, some of these guys are just like, oh, my Lord. When I hear somebody do a joke that I've never heard in, you know, 22 years, yeah, I'm like, that's amazing. And I'll tell them, I say, you know what? I've never heard anybody talk about the yellow-bellied sapsucker like you did. Or, yeah. you know, whatever, right, the, yeah. whatever the thing is. Because usually it's like, yeah, I've heard everything. And then somebody comes along, some new guy, and I'm like, what? Never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And you get to sit there and, and, and watch it all if you want, you know. Yeah. I know you take your breaks to, you know. Medicate. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, to kind of um, yeah, switch gears a little bit, part of the reason I've always liked you is you've always reminded me of my Uncle Joe, who um, did pass away of HIV back in 1991. And he oh, was a, I'm sorry. He was a 
fucking great piano player, great singer, brutally funny. I mean, yeah. He was so funny, and he had to be. Like, he developed a sense of humor. My grandparents were not okay with him being gay, and they weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just not... He had a he had a, he died at thirty, so he had a very oh. short life. And uh, but you you've always reminded him for for all those reasons that you're funny and you're a great musician and 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 you know that he you're you're able you've been surviving with this for so long. You know um, what what's it like? First of all, were your, your parents were cool with? Well, you know what I think. Did they have any moments where they were? I think I might have told them that I had HIV before I told them I was gay. Oh, really? I, yeah, I didn't come out till, I mean, actually, I figured that my mom knew and my dad, you know, didn't. And it was just the opposite. Oh, really? My mom knew I was in theater and around a bunch of gay people, so, you know. And yeah. my dad sort of realized, oh, he's not dating girls. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't seem to have anybody dating or something, but, uh, no, they were fine with it. Okay. You know, yeah, the, like I said, the HIV, that was... The worst part, you know, right? Uh, especially thinking that it's like, well, you know, when I went in, I had a friend. I'd lived in Provincetown in '85, like I said, where I was went down there, started playing piano for singers. I played a, a, at a hotel in the lobby, and uh, did my peewee stuff. I did a little mime stuff that summer too, um, and uh, well. I'm just having a senior moment. I have no idea what the hell I was just about to say. It's okay. It happens all the time. It happens yeah, to me. So crazy. Um, something about I was living in Cape Cod. And, you were living in Provincetown. And... Oh, yeah. I slept. I slept. I, I dated this one guy. Mm-hmm. And when I was first there, and he was what they call a townie, somebody that lives there. And I have a feeling he just, like, dated people just to have a place to sleep or food or whatever, you know. Yeah. And he was, like, a frustrated entertainer. Basically, anything he saw somebody do, he tried to do it, you know. But I dated him for, I was, well, was seven months I was down there, and I think I dated him for, like, the first two or so. And then probably slept with three other people. Yeah. So, you know, considered, and I'd only had one boyfriend but for four years before that. So I was not uh, out and about in the sexual world, really. Right. Uh, but I, uh, uh, my, my best friend had come down and spent uh, a week with me. And uh, like that next spring, he said, you know, I think I should go get tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was more promiscuous than I was. I mean, yeah. he started fooling around with guys when he was in junior high. Yeah, and uh, so I said, "Sure, I'll go and get tested. We'll go to the Cleveland Clinic and have it done where it's you know uh, anonymous mm-hmm. and nobody will know. You just give them a a number code to make up, and that's you know your code and all." And so we did that, and I forget how many weeks it was waiting. It was hell. I remember that just yeah, awful. Shit. Um, and so I went in first because hell, I slept with. Three guys that summer and one before that. Yeah. My friend, a lot more. Right. <laughs> Just leave it as <laughs> won't, won't dirty his memory. Yeah. Um, and I walked in, and they said, well, you know, why are you here today? I said, well, my friend needs to get tested. And I thought, sure, I will too. You know, I've had five partners. And uh, he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well... Oh, that's why I said, well, I've only had five partners, you know. And, 
not been really promiscuous. And mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm negative. And he said, well, you're positive. Well, just like that. Yeah. And I said, what does that mean? He says, well, the best we can tell tell you is that you have two years to live. Um, here's a pamphlet. Good luck. And he got up and walked wow. out of the room. No shit. That, that, that brutal. That just. That was it. Wow. You got two years to live. Good luck. Yeah. Because they were back then afraid. They didn't know how people were getting it. Yeah. So, you know, he didn't want to stay in that room with me. Yeah. And I walked out, and my friend could tell by the look on my face. He said, what was it? And I said, I'm positive. And he's like, well, then I'm definitely positive. And when he came out, he was white as a ghost also. And I'm like, positive? He's like, I'm negative. So that was interesting. Yeah. And uh, he... uh, he he had a, a boyfriend, and they moved the same time I moved to California. They moved, uh, I forget where they went, Denver, I think. And then they broke up, and his uh, uh, he, he moved out here with me and yeah. lived with me for about five years before he got really sick. And one just one quick week in the hospital, the one time that he was there, and uh, passed away at 35. Huh. Yeah, I, I wish all the time that my uncle could be alive right now because not only have they come so far with medications and all that stuff and he could yeah. actually be alive, um, but he, he was one of the few people that I, I wish I could talk to about my comedy and I know how proud he would be of me and he was just really fucking cool and uh, it just breaks my heart, but I'm really glad that they've made the advances they have and uh, you look good and healthy. And oh, yeah. And feel I mean, I didn't, I didn't go on the meds for... 10 years or so because my friends, like the one I'm talking about, my friend that passed, the amount of AZT, which was the very first medication they had, let's say when I was starting on medications, let's just say I got a milligram. Yeah. I don't even know. 10 milligrams. I don't even know how big a pill is. Okay. 10 milligrams? Is that the size of a pill? Yeah. Does that sound about right? Sure. He was getting about 5,000. Wow. Milligrams. A lot, and he he stopped his he stopped the medication on his own the year before he passed away because he the side effects where he felt like killing and actually until he passed away he actually got better yeah you know and uh, so it's it's crapshoot there's a a a chromosome that every human has called CCR five okay doesn't do a damn thing at all but if you get a defective version of this chromosome mm-hmm. from one parent, you're about 50% immune from getting HIV. Wow. And for both parents, almost 100% immune from getting HIV. Strain one, wow. which is the strain we have in this country, although I guess strain two is suddenly started appearing in America. Um, it's a thousands of dollar test to find out if I have this defective chromosome, so yeah. I don't know. But it seems to be like they found it specifically in white European people. And this chromosome, the only thing it did for people that had a, a, a screwed up version of it was keep them alive through the Black Plague yeah. and the bubonic plague and now AIDS. Yeah. So, you know, they, uh, they can't use my blood. There was a, a test that was going to be done when I was living out here, but... Uh, they, they didn't want to test people that already had HIV, but they think one of the things they've been working on is if we take this chromosome and 
are able to put it back into the body as a negative one, will it fight the disease on its own? Yeah. You know. So something will come along. Yeah. But, so yeah, this I is mean, a... I didn't expect to have the quality of life and the health that I, I have health issues. I have health problems. But, right. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm walking. I pay my bills. I have a job I love. Yeah. Okay, I've got some issues and side effects. Who doesn't? Yeah. Everybody's got something. But what are, you've you've had a very uh, cool fucking life, man, and uh, to, yeah, for for things to be changed have changed the way they have in the in the way that they have, you know, like when my uncle was, you know, he, you know, it was just a different time. Um, oh yeah, yeah, you know, the difference I imagine from when you were younger to now is just night and day. Yeah, you know? yeah, and yet it's still. And I'm sure somebody will be listening to this podcast right here and turn it off when I say they have HIV because it's still the scary, dirty sex thing that, you know, nasty fags have, nobody else, yeah, you know, well. and there's that stigma. And this, I'm, I'm open about it here. You know, most people know, yeah. which has helped me to not feel the stigma. Yeah. Not to feel like it's something I have to hide. I mean, it's, you know, but if I had, if I was, you know, missing a leg, everybody would know I had something. Yeah. This is an internal thing. If you could see inside me. Yeah. Whole different story than what I present to people. But again, I'm still alive. Yeah. yeah. And I'm still doing what I love yeah. and, you know, making my livelihood a hundred percent from entertainment. Right. Uh, so I feel like. And if anybody quit listening when they heard that, they can. They can, they can fuck right <laughs> well, up. I was I was maybe a little dramatic. <laughs> but, but no, I, I you know I think I, uh, uh, I I don't know I'm not really the most religious even though I grew up with a dad who was a minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of have a feeling my friends that have passed on are looking out for me. Sure, I believe that too, buddy. You know. Or it's just a crap suit, and there's no reason. Yeah, crap shoot. Well, I, I, I uh, I'm with you on that. I think that people that have passed look look out for you sometimes. But you know, if I if somebody knew I had cancer, oh my oh, god, yeah. how are you? The hugs, the kisses, sure. the, the you know that type of stuff. And this is just like, oh, well, what did he do? Did he fuck a goat? Yeah, it's just like mental illness. You know, if you like you said, if you have cancer, people are like, oh my god, what can we do for you? And if you tell someone, yeah. I'm, after I go to therapy and I take medication for this, they're like, oh, yeah, what's wrong with I've you? Yeah, I've taken Prozac for quite a few years. I have manic depression. And, I mean, generally I'm 95% happy and high, and then one little thing can trigger it, and I just go down to where I want to curl up and stay in my bed and not have any interaction with people and, you know, yeah. don't even eat for a few days or something. and. And people are way less um, cool about, you know, if you have something like that than they are about a certain other, you know, like a physical thing, cancer or something. And it's just right. it's just a shame. You know, we've all got our fucking thing and our issues. And, and the older I get, the more I realize, kind of to your point a few minutes ago, was that um, the older I get, the less I give a shit about what other people think. Yeah. And, and it's one thing to say that. And it's another thing to genuinely feel it. And I'm finally starting to feel it. Like, I'm starting yeah. to do stuff on stage that matters to me. Like, I've been able to kill for a long time. But now I'm trying to finally, like, say things that matter and kill at the same time or get them back whenever I want, you know. And mm-hmm. and my relationship has gotten so much better with my mom and just all this shit, you know. And I'm and having a baby in four a months. Yeah. yeah. 
and you just start to you're 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 it just starts to get narrow and narrow about the people well, that you actually give a shit what they think. For me, being open to, and not everybody here, I, I was, probably this is the first time some new door guys are hearing about my illness, but there were so many people here at work that I could talk to, and they were just like, so? You know, it was like, and you're still Jeff. It's like my mom yeah. said to me today on the phone, she doesn't think of me as a gay man. Sometimes if I get angry... I feel like people are like, oh, it's a gay guy having a hissy fit as opposed to I'm a person who is actually angry about an issue. Yeah. You know, don't marginalize it. Right. But my mom said, I've never thought of you as a gay man. And I'm like, when people say, you know, well, tell me about yourself. It's not like, I'm gay. I have HIV. <laughs> Woo, sister. You know, I'm not a 20-year-old a, a moving from some city where you couldn't speak the word to now yeah. I'm in West Hollywood and I'm going to wear disco shoes all day long. Yeah. You know, but it has helped me, even though I, I, I still know there's the stigma, I don't feel it is as stigmatized here at work now yeah. because I can be out about it. And the fact that people still hug and kiss me, straight guys, give me a kiss on the cheek or right. even on the lips sometimes, just being silly. But it, that that says to me, they know they're not going to be able to catch it. Sure. That's, you know, it has to be blood to blood. Yeah. Um, the guy that I dated in Provincetown, uh, those first couple months I was there in 85, mm -hmm. uh, about... 10, yeah, about 10 years ago, I was at uh, Ralph's down the street from where I live, mm -hmm. three blocks away. And he was in line behind me. And I tried to ignore him, like, I don't know who you are. I knew exactly who it was. Yeah. And now I know I'm positive, and I'm like, well, it was either you or one of those other the other three people that and them I just had a one night stand with you know and I also know it wasn't anything unsafe with those other guys right um and finally he just started up he's like hey are you so uh, didn't you live in Provincetown blah, blah, blah. oh hi yeah hi what are you doing here oh I just moved here oh where do you live he's like I'm just down the street on Norton blah blah blah, blah. and I'm like he's like where are you and I told him where I lived when I moved here because mm -hmm. I live on Norton yeah He's two blocks away from me. Wow. On the other side of the country. Wow, that's crazy. And he says, you got to watch the news tonight. I'm on the news for an art program I'm in. And I'm like, okay, same guy, still trying to hustle yeah. this stuff and all. And I don't know why, but I watched the news that night. And it was a story on artists with AIDS. And they interviewed him. And he showed his work. And they said, well, when did you know you had AIDS? And he said, in 1984. Oh. Yeah. I met him in 1985. Yeah. So. So I know who yeah. the person is, which is, I didn't ever have to know that. It's right. All, it's, well, it's not worth knowing, but that was just to find out that now he's here. And, that he and now he's down the street from me and that he ultimately, you know. Knew what he was doing. Yeah. Or potentially and didn't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how many other people. Yeah, I dude, I've no, I without mentioning names, I know a couple of people that have told me about. There's this comic I know that's like, he's like, I've got three uh, STDs, and I was like, how does that conversation go when you hook up with a girl on the road or something? And he's like, I don't tell them, and I was like, what do you, what do you mean you don't tell them? Like, yeah, he's like, I figured that's that's on them if they didn't, if, <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, if no, it, that's it, on it's you. on them if they're promiscuous and you don't know. 
But if you know when you're doing it, then you're a fucking asshole. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's all there's to Although it. something I can say uh, that is has been good being open about my status here at work. Uh, again, not naming names, but over the years I've had, I can think of three different people come to me and ask, is there a place where they could discreetly go and be tested? Yeah. Uh, one guy was cheating on his wife. And the other two were, um, uh, I can't think of what it's called, needle users. Mm-hmm. Whatever their drug was, they were sharing needles with people. Yeah. And so I was able to, you know, they confided in me because I had been open. Yeah. And sent them to the Gay and Lesbian Center where it's anonymous testing. And thank God all three of them came back negative. Yeah. But if I had not been open here, they wouldn't have asked me. Right. So as much as there still is that stigma, I feel like, here at work of all places I can do some good yeah well (laughs) isn't this a funny podcast today (laughs) folks you just (laughs) no it's 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 been a great podcast and it's uh, you know we're gonna have to wrap it up but I I could talk to you forever about lots of stuff there's lots of stuff I didn't even get to that I want to talk to you about but uh, I, I love you and I'm glad that uh, you, I got, finally got you on here well and thank you I, buddy I always enjoy seeing you and, uh, there you go well you can visit Jeff Scott Entertainer my website and you okay. can look at everything I used to do <laughs> <laughs> but you know I said this to somebody the other night too there's a longer shelf life working behind the scenes yeah I mean I worked I I physically don't have the energy to work on a movie or something like that, you know, but I've got the energy to do this Yeah, and to be able to be friends with Joe Rogan and Dave Chappelle and Mark Maron and, you know, Tim Gaither, (laughs) Tim Gaither. (laughs) Absolutely. I should have put that one in first, shouldn't I? This is good here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Jeff Scott, sorry, Jeff Scott entertainer.com. Yeah. I'm also Jeff Scott on entertainer on Facebook. Okay. Cool. Um, And I have, uh, they can find the link on Facebook. I have a a Facebook page called the Comedy Store Archives. Okay. All the the basement where we are now used to be just filled with old photos and stuff. And I would take boxes home and scan them and then bring them back. Nice. Because I thought if, God forbid, anything ever happened to the building, all those archives would be lost. So close to 5,000 photos up on there. No shit. And then I have another one that's called Ciro's, which is about this club back in the 40s when the mob owned it. Wow. So you can check me all out online. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. And I'm here Tuesday through Saturday nights playing piano in the original room at the yeah. world-famous comedy store. Yeah, he's fucking great. And uh, <laughs> as always, go to timgathercomedy.com and check out all my uh, social media links and my YouTube and this podcast. And anything you want to find Tim Gaither related is on there. And as always, go to makingithappen.com, M-A-C-A-N-ithappen.com, and help out little bow making and uh, donate money to his family and... Uh, and all that stuff, and uh, yeah, I believe that's it, so God bless all of you, thanks for listening, bye.